Good morning. If you have your Bible, we're going to be in Haggai chapter 1. I'm going to read uh, the first six verses. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadok, the high priest. Jehozadok, rather. Jehozadok. There we go. Thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of God. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you this morning uh, grateful for another day to gather in your uh, house with your people and worship you. We recognize, Lord, that the best of us are just sinners. And so we come in here with all kinds of different um, attitude problems and heart problems and thinking problems and uh, the cares of life weighing us down, the frustrations of Um, just existing with our own remaining corruption, chasing us everywhere we go. Uh, There's so many reasons for us to be discouraged and distracted this morning that it's just going to take the miracle of you, Holy Spirit, dwelling with us in our hearts and guiding the way that we think this morning for us to get anything out of this. So we pray that that would happen. We ask with united hearts, that you would be pleased to dwell in our midst here as we study your word, that you would guide me as I speak and guide all of us to listen and to learn so that we might magnify you and be about the business of expanding the kingdom. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Can I get a show of hands? How many of you have ever been through a sermon series in Haggai? Two. All right. Um, Well, even if you've not been through a teaching series on it, I I want to assure you, just based on what we've already read, that we're not uh, we're not starting a building campaign. I haven't trotted out Haggai because I need everybody to tithe more. This isn't like there's I don't have anything hidden behind my back, but we we are speeding towards replanting Springfield Baptist Church. Um, And that means different things to different people, and I will hopefully explain to you more carefully what that means to me in the weeks to come. Most church planters or revitalizers, which is, I guess, what I am, um, take their little new congregations through a series in Ezra and Nehemiah. But I don't want to be like most church planters and revitalizers, so I refused to do that. Instead, thought Haggai or Zechariah would be a better option. Um, 
but I want you to breathe easy. I think this is a good way for us to kind of set our expectations together. This is not a, 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 a I'm not like secretly going to get you to get your checkbook out. I promise that. <laughs> but if that happens, just know it wasn't my intention. All right. <laughs> This is not the, the most evangelical sermon that I've ever put together. This is a sermon for Christians. So let me point something out to you. Since September, when we arrived here and united and began this effort, I have not said, make sure you invite your neighbors, your coworkers, your friends, or your family. And the reason I haven't said that is I don't think we're ready for that yet. In fact, there was uh, someone threw an idea out a few months ago or a couple of weeks ago that we do something with the old folks home or some, you know, community event. And like beyond the trunk or treat at, at the, the city, whatever that's called, community center, I am disinclined to engage in a bunch of outreach because I just don't think we've got the foundation yet to do that. And other pastors that I've spoken to and the Southern Baptist Convention here in Nebraska agree with me on that. However, like Lee and some of you, I'm sure, I'm anxious to get this thing going. I just want to make sure we do it right. This sermon series is a sermon series for Christians. If somebody comes in the door to visit us, we're not going to say, no, get out. But I want you to be aware that if you're not a believer, you're probably not going to get much out of this, which is a really handy tool that I can use as a preacher to say, if you don't get much out of this, you're probably not a Christian. <laughs> so if you're missing out, it's not ever my fault. Let's talk about the historical context. In about 970 BC, King David, the first real good king in Israel, dies. He's the second king in Israel, but he's the first one that wasn't terrible. He dies, and so the throne of Israel passes to his son Solomon. In 967, Solomon begins preparations for the construction of the temple. So there's a three-year period where Solomon is just kind of getting his feet underneath him as king. And he, this is when he asks God that God would give him wisdom so he'd be a wise ruler. And then at three years in, he begins to accumulate the resources necessary to build the temple, which is not actually completed until 959 when it's dedicated. 28 years later, 937 B.C., 1 Kings 11 describes for us how the heart of Solomon, who was given special wisdom by God and the privilege of building the permanent temple in Jerusalem, the heart of Solomon turns away from God and he starts going after women, lots of them, right? The result of that is judgment is pronounced against Solomon's descendants and exercised against his descendants. So after Solomon dies there's kind of a civil war it's really more of a divorce between judah and the northern kingdoms of israel and never again does the king in jerusalem rule over the other 11 tribes or israel so you have two kingdoms now judah in the south where jerusalem is and everybody else north of that is their own kingdom after solomon and and this divide happens the northern kingdoms are ruled almost without exception by evil men. There are really no good kings. There's a, 
Like one or two, you could say, eh, it's a mixed bag, but for the most part, they're awful. It's a horrible thing to behold as you work through Kings and Chronicles. In the southern kingdom, Judah, after Solomon, you have bad king, bad king, good king, good king, bad king, bad king, bad king. Two that are mixed, like it starts well, but it doesn't end well. But if you want to give credit where credit's due, it was mixed. Good king, good king, bad king, good king, bad king, bad king, very good king, Josiah, my favorite, who, like me, is impetuous and goes and does things he shouldn't do and ends up dying at a young age as a result. <laughs> then there are four bad kings who, who really are ultimately vassal kings to the Chaldeans. Babylon is breathing down Judah's neck at this point, and these kings really serve at the pleasure of the king of the Chaldeans. Babylon captures Judah in 605 B.C., and all of the prominent Jews are exiled to Babylon. I'm going to say this again so that those of you who have tuned out and started thinking about literally anything else, <laughs> like the five-star uh, LSU player Nebraska just picked up, uh, if you're thinking about that, come back and think about 605 B.C. with me when Babylon overthrows Judah and takes all of the prominent Jews captive. This is important because there were Jews that were left behind. It's not like everybody with, with you know, Abrahamic DNA in them got exiled to Babylon. Just the ones that were worth something got exiled. What got left behind were all of the people who were lazy, didn't really know how to do anything, weren't really too worried about being productive. So they're left behind in Jerusalem. For about 20 years, in 586, Jerusalem gets raised. The temple is gone. There's not one stone left upon another. So everybody good has been exiled. The, the temple is destroyed. And then in 536, 70 years after the prominent Jews were exiled, there's a new kingdom that takes over. Cyrus and the Persians overthrow the Babylonians. And Cyrus issues a decree that the Jews should go back to Jerusalem. This is 70 years after 605 when the prominent Jews were initially exiled. They head back to Jerusalem. They start kind of rebuilding, but they don't actually get any work done on the temple right away. Reconstruction of the temple isn't completed until 515, 70 years after it was raised. You'll hear people debate whether or not God's prophecies are accurate, because in Daniel, in Ezekiel, in Jeremiah, there are these prophecies that say there's going to be an exile for 70 years. And if you do the math and you go, well, the temple was raised in 586 and then restored in 515, you go, oh, that's, that's pretty close to seven years. But what a lot of people do is they go, no, the exile happened in 586. When the temple got destroyed, that's when it started. And then in, in 536, when the first Jews start coming back, that's when it ended. That's not 70 years. God's wrong. Bible contradicts itself. There's actually three different 70-year periods. Uh, don't worry, I don't have any charts. <laughs> We're not doing that. There's three different 70-year periods that you could attribute exile to. But my favorite one is 586 to 515, where the temple is destroyed and then eventually rebuilt. So Cyrus overthrows Babylon. He, he does. By the way, Cyrus is prophesied about by name in Isaiah 44, mm -hmm. over 150 years before he's ever even born. 
He's prophesied about by name. And there are uh, commentators on Isaiah who are like, well, this is hard to understand, but clearly it was written uh, long after the reign of Cyrus. And no, clearly it wasn't because we have manuscripts going back almost to its inception. Anyway, not the point. Uh, Looking at Ezra chapter 3, which you don't need to do, because I want you to stay kind of buckled up like we're moving fast, even though we're not, and this is tedious. Ezra chapter 3 describes the temple work beginning in 535. In Ezra 4, one chapter later, adversaries rise up from the north of Jerusalem, from the north of Judah. Now, who's there? Not Israel. Israel got removed by the Assyrians even before the exile of Judah happened. So who is in Assyria right now, or sorry, Israel right now, is a bunch of Assyrian like migrants, people from all different countries that the Assyrians had taken over. These are not Jews. Temple work has begun, and the people in the northern area of Israel come down and say, oh, neat, what are you guys doing? And the Jews say, we're building the temple so that we can worship God. And they say, let us help. We'd like to worship God. And the Jews say, no, you don't get to. You're not Jews. Now, this is exclusive and offensive in our PC culture. But at the time, it correctly follows the prescribed path that God had laid out. The people of God and only the people of God are supposed to worship God. And they're supposed to do it in the temple in the way that he prescribes. The result of their exclusionary, racist, hateful bigotry is that the people that live north of Jerusalem write a letter to the now king of the Chaldeans, a guy named, or not Chaldeans, of the Persians, a guy named, this is debatable. Uh, The Bible attributes the name Artaxerxes to him, and and I just, it's not Artaxerxes, the one we know, because that guy doesn't come along until like 480 B.C., so it's a guy that kind of has the same name, but it's not. Anyway, it, you don't care. None of you have ever studied this. The point is they write a letter to the king back in Persia and they say, listen, the Jews are rebuilding their temple. And if they get it rebuilt, they're going to stop paying you taxes and they're going to start ripping everybody off because that's what Jews do. And they're going to create all kinds of problems for you. So the king, not Cyrus, but not Darius yet in, in Persia is like, that's true. Let's put a stop to this. So he writes back to these adversaries and says, put a stop to the temple reconstruction, even if you have to use force. So by the end of Ezra 4, temple construction has stopped. Now the Jews don't get sent out. They're still there working on their own houses and their own properties and kind of rebuilding the area, but no temple work is going on. Any questions about the historical context of Haggai? Or was that really well done? That was really well done. All right, thank you, Liz. I appreciate it. Verse 1 in our text. In the second year of Darius the king. So this is a new king. You have Cyrus. You have this fellow who's given the name Artaxerxes in, in Ezra. And then you have Darius. So this is the third king of Persia since the Jews were sent back to Jerusalem. In the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So who's Haggai? We don't know. Haggai and Zechariah both begin their ministries at precisely the same time. 
If you go look at Ezra 5.1, it says, When the prophets, Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the Son of I'm sorry, in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Jezadok, arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. In Ezra 6, verse 14, it says, The elders of the Jews were successful in building through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo, and they finished building according to the command of the God of Israel and the decree of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. Neither of these mentions tells us much about Haggai, and Haggai doesn't tell us much about himself, and Zechariah doesn't help. So we don't really know. Suffice it to say, he was a pastor in Jerusalem for a very short but very important period of time. Specifically, the second year of Darius the king, the sixth month on the first day of the month for us would be August 29th, 520 BC. So we know the exact date that his ministry began. He preached from August through December. So I am excited to have exceeded his tenure here. But I'm also aware that God can do whatever he wants, and my time may be drawing to an end. So I'm trying to make like the most of it, right? He preached primarily to the governor and to the high priest, but he preached in the presence of all the people in Jerusalem. We'll see this more as we work through the book. And then Haggai preaches four messages. This first one begins in 1-1. The second one begins in 2-1. The third one begins in 2-10. And the last one begins in 2-20. So there's four messages Let's see how many I can get out of that, right? Verse 2, thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Okay. (laughs) This is an issue of misplaced or misaligned priorities. When God says these people... He's usually not being affectionate. There's normally a rebuke there. Does that make sense? When he's being affectionate, what does he say? My people. When he says, these people, he's letting you know that there's a problem with these people. Okay? The best people need to periodically be stirred up in their affections and have their priorities realigned from time to time. The people of God are sometimes providentially hindered from the work of God. There are different ways that this happens. We've all experienced it. You might get sick. You might run out of resources. You might have to move physical locations. You might experience some great discouragement. There's any number of things that might divert you from the work of God. In the case of the Jews, they come from Persia. They build an altar, they lay the foundation of the temple, they start sacrificing, they start worshiping, word gets out, they get providentially hindered. Under the threat of death, like it's a legit hindrance. Nobody faults them for stopping the work. The problem is, they didn't restart it. 16 years later, they're still like, yeah, like, you know, we, they told us no. Yes, 16 years ago they told you no, but some things have changed now. 
They engaged in the prescribed worship that had been neglected while they were in exile, but they didn't get all the way there. There are always cautious people who are less likely to take great risks than others. Listen, listen to me. If you've ever had the misfortune of going to a summer camp or a Bible conference where they bring out some super Christian who tells you how they bravely overcame this, that, or the other thing in order to do amazing things for the kingdom of God. And if you would just be more courageous, you too could do amazing things for the kingdom of God. But you have to forsake your sin and you have to love Jesus. And if you've ever been through that, I would like you to just press the delete button on all that nonsense. It's not true. It's made up. It's fake. It's phony. That guy that flies out onto the stage because he's so full of the Holy Spirit. Everything that I have done pastorally, as a father, as a husband, as just a Christian has been a miracle by the grace of God with me kind of going, I'm not sure. I'm not sure the whole time. All of the amazing things that have happened in the kingdom of God have been like, read your Bible. It's been in spite of these people. There are no super saints. All of us need to have our affections stirred up and our priorities reset. When I announced my resignation from my last church and my intention to plant a new one, I was approached by no fewer than three wealthy entrepreneurial men on different occasions who sat me down to say I was being very foolish. The economy is not right for a work like this. You don't have any experience planting churches. You aren't going to be able to find a job. Who is going to take care of the people that you're leaving behind? You really think we need another church in this city? And listen, these were not evil men serving the devil. These were wise, cautious, thoughtful men who were trying to encourage me to be more careful and be more deliberate. And I guess the jury's still out on whether I made the right decision, but I want to share something with you. God's work done with the right attitude of the heart always receives his provision and blessing. Always. Since coming to Springfield, we've heard similar advice. Go slow. Be careful. The building is too small. The people are too few. You're too damaged. They're too damaged. And again, not from evil servants of the devil, just people that are like, hey, here's what I see. Here's what I think you need to know. It's not yet time to build a church in Springfield. And I don't believe that that's evil counsel. I believe it's given by wise and cautious people. I happen to possess some wisdom. Let's not take a vote, but I imagine some of you at some point thought that I was insightful. And I want to tell you right now, I am not insightful. I've just read a lot and have figured out how to take other people's wisdom and thoughts and say them as though I came up with it, right? But I do possess some wisdom. What I have never possessed, ever, is caution. So I've taken risks that a lot of people think are stupid. And they probably were stupid. 
but I have a house. I have a wife. I have kids who are, you know, they're doing okay. Like, we're okay, right? Right? Okay. So my impetuousness, notwithstanding, God has provided graciously. Here, let's just look around. Lo and behold, with help and prayers from you all, I found a pretty decent job. Lo and behold, people wanted to come with me bad enough that they were willing to meet in my basement. There's people here who want to see a work done in this town. We are already growing. And we're like trying not to. People are already volunteering. God worked things out already so that not only do I not have to work the overnight, but in the next couple of months, I'll be on days like a normal grown-up. He's taking care of everything. Hundreds of people around the country. Listen, this is, I'm not making this up. Hundreds of people around this country are praying for this work. The SBC wants to help us get established here. They have a lot of money. A lot. And they want to help. The joint is already about full, right? We're we're going to have to figure something out. Kitchen's got to go or the volleyball court does. We've got to grow this place physically to accommodate what's going to happen, and we haven't even started. God always blesses his work with every necessary provision. Always. Now, I need to warn you, things are going to get harder. Mm -hmm. Adversaries are going to arise. There will be discouragements. There will be difficulties. And you will be tempted, as will I, from time to time, to throw in the towel and say, maybe it's not yet time to do a work in Springfield. Maybe there's enough churches in Omaha. Verses 3 through 6. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. So here are the Lord's words for us. If you're, if you're here now or you listen to this message and you're part of what you know, what we're planning to do here. And your thought is, eh, I'm not so sure. It may not be time yet. <clears throat> is it time for you to build your own wealth? Is it time for you to remodel your own house? Is it time for you to lay up more retirement? Is it time for that? Is it time to buy a rental property? And then he says, consider your ways. Have you ever, ever accumulated enough to be at peace? It doesn't matter how many barns you build. You could always use a little bit more. That's the human condition because our application of our own restlessness and our own appetite is misaligned. It's misapplied. Think about it like this. God has designed us that whatever he blesses us with, our 
affection should roll through that blessing and terminate on the giver. So God gives you something that you enjoy. You, you're supposed to recognize that it comes from him and it should generate worship in you for him. But what we do because we're broken is our affections terminate on the gift rather than the giver. So we're always a little bit unsatisfied with what we've got. Isn't it true that your own discomfort never actually completely abates? And as you get older, isn't it true that new discomforts arise? So when then is it going to be time? If things are not improving for you individually, when are we expecting that they're going to improve economically or in the culture or in the community to the point where now it's time, now it's time. Consider your own ways. Isn't it true that you yourself frequently find excuses to put off the work of God just for your own soul's sake? I'll read my Bible later. I'll spend time in prayer later. I'll be more disciplined in my pursuit of holiness later. And those, that's just like the low-hanging fruit. We're not even talking about the pet sins that you don't want to put away, that you don't want to forsake. So don't we as individuals have a history of putting off until later? Isn't that accurate? So God encourages us to consider our ways before we get real far down the road of evaluating what kingdom work we should or should not be engaged in. How is your spiritual health? How is your marriage? How are your kids doing? How are your finances? Consider your ways. God doesn't say consider your ways so he can go nan nanny boo boo. He says consider your ways because he wants you to consider your ways. What are you doing one way that you ought to be doing another? What attitude of your heart is permeating your thought life, perverting your spouse's thought life, and corrupting your family that needs to be changed? Start there. You want to find things wrong with what I'm doing here, what we're trying to do here? That'll be no problem for you. But if you start with your own heart and your own mind and your own patterns of thought, you'll find it a little more difficult to condemn the work of the kingdom. You've sown much but harvested little or and harvested little. Let's just apply that to church. Forget about your personal finances for just a minute. I'm going to go easy on you. You can listen again if you've tuned me out. Think about your own church history. If you've been going to church for any length of time, how'd that go? You've sown much and harvested little. Just in terms of church life, you've invested in ministries before and it amounted to dust and ashes. Isn't that true? You weren't appreciated. You weren't supported. You weren't helped. You got burned out and now you aren't excited. Because it's not yet time. I mean, why don't, why don't we just take a poll? Everybody who's never been hurt at church is free to leave. <laughs> Nobody's leaving. We've all been hurt at church. God continues. You eat, <clears throat> but never have enough. And drink, 
but never have your fill. That restless, gnawing hunger inside you isn't, be, isn't, it isn't because you're bitter about how things have gone in the past. No, no, it's because no one's going to fool you again and you're wiser now. I would submit to you that that restless, gnawing hunger in you is actually the Holy Spirit, brothers and sisters. You may be a little wore out. You may be a little used up. You might be a little sick of the games and the people at church, but you cannot deny that there is a nagging sense in the deepest chambers of your heart that is not satisfied. And I would submit that it won't be satisfied until we've broken a nail or two building this house rather than painting our nails in our own house. We must get to work because God has put it in us to do this work. And if you don't, you're always going to be a little bit bitter, a little bit critical, a little bit too good for whatever's going on here. You got to get engaged. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Do you hear what God is saying to these people, a.k.a. us? Do you hear what he's saying? For the Christian, there is a deep, profound need to be invested in kingdom work. If you're not invested, nothing is going to satisfy that need. Nothing. Your hobbies are somehow gray, tasteless, and mildly interesting if you even have any. I would bet half of this congregation, just based on the age, has spent too much time on TikTok in the last week. (laughs) Well, think about this. So, the videos on average on TikTok are a minute long on average because you can have one up to three minutes long you can have one as short as two or three seconds okay and you decide when you've had enough of the video that you're watching simply by swiping next video that's where we are today this isn't this is not thoroughly entertaining and interesting me next 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 where we were 30 years ago was sesame street where there's a new subject every minute to three minutes because children don't have the attention span to handle long dissertations with lots of information. We have been steadily getting dumber over the last hundred years. And I'm hoping that TikTok is the, the deepest part of the abyss, but somehow I doubt very much that it is. Okay. If you spent more time on TikTok or social media than you did on something that you enjoy or used to, like a hobby, what does that tell you? You need something new and sparkly in front of you every 10 to 15 seconds just to stay mildly entertained. Isn't there something restless in us that drives us from an early age to pursue depth and meaning beyond Sesame Street? I'm not up here railing against social media, but here's what I know for a fact. All the new tech, new cars, new clothes, new hair, new house, new spouse, 
None of that satisfies because none of it fills up the God-given hunger that we all have to see his kingdom grow. So Garrett, Emily, married for a little bit less than a year. I told them before they got married, you guys are going to fight. And it's like you need to. That's part of figuring out how to be married. And I, have you fought? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, the bloom, bloom is already off the ropes. It didn't fix everything that was broken with them to get married. In fact, what it does is expose more of what's broken in us to get married. Fixing, fixing the marriage doesn't happen when you have kids. In fact, it gets way worse because now you don't have time for each other because you're just beating kids all the time. <laughs> and trying to get them out of your house. None of what we've come up with will fill the God-given hunger that we have to see his kingdom grow. And look right at me. I need to remind you of this. Look, look right here. I'm not after your money. I'm after your satisfaction. Amen. God has designed us as believers, redesigned us, so that we would pursue the advancement of the kingdom. And the way that he describes it from early on all the way through the New Testament is it's like a mustard seed that grows and grows and grows. And here we are trying to grow this, right? I'm after your satisfaction, but we might need to reprioritize. I imagine we've all had discouragements in our kingdom efforts. People don't show up. They don't volunteer. You share the gospel and all it gets you is a reputation. You thought someone was a friend at church, but they turn out to be an enemy. This place has had how many pastors? She can't even keep count. They don't even know. These are discouraging realities. Every person in this room, at, over the age of 10, I would say, is at least well down the path of becoming a skeptic. The rest of us have perfected it. We're skeptical. We don't bite that easily anymore. All of us have been tossed around through our Christian lives, and we've learned to be more cautious, haven't we? Amen? Yeah. Well, it may be time to reprioritize. If you've been putting off getting serious about your own walk with God, I asked earlier, how's that? How's your, how's your walk with God? How are things with your spouse? How are your finances? How are things with the kids? And we all know if you've been doing Christianity for any length of time, if those things are going to get better, this thing has to get better, right? So if you've been putting that off and, and you find reasons to be skeptical and critical of what's happening here at Springfield, and I know there are some of you who think like this, like you've already identified what's wrong. It's too much like GBC. It's not enough like the SBC. I miss church the way it used to be back in the day. Like whatever your thing is that you think, whatever skepticism you have, you hide it behind this idea that you've become cautious. It's not yet time because you're cautious. But God seems to be saying, no, your priorities are out of order. So let me remind you some beautiful things. Let's look at Galatians chapter three. And I'm about done. I realize this one's running a little long. <clears throat> Galatians three, verse one. Uh, it should be noted that this is my first time since September 
right? So we're four months and a couple of weeks in. I have never referenced Galatians 3.1 here to four. So this is the first time. So don't pick on me for this. Oh, foolish Galatians. And what I really mean is, oh, foolish Springfield Baptist Church. Who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Think about what he's asking you. Did you suffer what you've suffered in vain? Look, if your experiences in church have moved you from the point where you from the heart graciously, lovingly serve Jesus Christ, if you've gone from there to the place where you would rather sit at home and protect the little domain that you have, your your suffering has been in vain. You started in the spirit, now you're going to finish in the flesh? You want your own walk with God to be vibrant and healthy? Here's what you need to remember. Does he who supplies the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now I have, I know, a reputation for being a bit too emotional as a preacher. Uh, in the Reformed community. Like, Reformed people are like, you read your manuscript, brother, and keep it straight down the middle and don't manipulate the people. And that's not me. But my tears, when they come, are not contrived, and the design is not to be manipulative. My thought is this. If Paul had to routinely, publicly portray Jesus Christ as crucified, how much more so 2,000 years later do I need to do the same thing? And it's a gruesome scene that we have to go to Sunday after Sunday after Sunday to see the man hanging on the cross and dying. But if we don't go there and don't see it, we lose sight of all of our priorities. So let's go to the cross where the Son of God hangs. He hangs there, listen, not to condemn you. That's not why he's there. He's not hanging there to purchase the right to call you a loser. That's not why he hangs there. He hangs there to redeem you. He's not hanging on the cross to deceive you. He's not up there so that your emotions will get swept up and he can trick you into something. He's not trying to deceive you. He's trying to rescue you. And he hangs there, not to rob you, not to take your money or your car or your time. He's hanging there to ransom you. He died there not to refuse you, but to be in relationship with you. And he rose again to prove it. In Romans 5, 6, Paul says it this way. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So what did it cost Christ to redeem you? 
to rescue you, to ransom you. What it cost him? Everything. What does it cost you to be redeemed, to be rescued, and to be ransomed? Nothing. That is the economy of mercy. Look at me, please. Look, look at me. He loves you. Not a future version of you. You right now. He loves you. He cares for you. He died for you. He knew what you were going to be on January 9th, 2022. He knew exactly like every step you were going to take from your birth to now. He knew he loves you right now. How do you know? Maybe I'm not one of the elect. Don't be a fool. He loves you. Think about this. Relationship is the best basis for risk. Amen? Amen. Relationship is the best basis for risk. If you are trying to be more cautious, if it's not yet time, it's a relationship that needs to be strengthened, not your confidence. You need to get right with Jesus. What won't you do for him if you realize he rescued you from sin and from death? What won't you risk for him when you realize he gave up everything to redeem you from sin and death? And why on earth would we put this work off until it's safe when Jesus came and died so that we could have a kingdom? We can't put this off. We have to go forward. I better get some amens from this side of the room because I feel like maybe, maybe, <laughs> maybe we're just going forward. Do you, y'all understand what I'm saying? Amen. <laughs> Consider your ways. Now let's go to the cross and let's get to work. We're going to pray.